Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climate Consulting. In this conversation, I speak to Andy Zimmerman, CEO of Journey. Now, it's safe to say that Andy has had a fascinating career at the cutting edge of our industry. He was responsible for launching Accenture's new business division, better known today as Accenture Interactive. He turned around the leading global design agency, Frog, not once, but twice. And now he is running one of the world's first consultancies, tackling the challenges of customer experience in the metaverse journey. But Andy's story isn't just one of hard-charging corporate success. It is a journey of self-reflection and self-discovery that led him to places that he never thought he'd go and gives a powerful case study of the benefits of understanding who you are and bringing your true self to your professional as well as your personal life. In this one, Andy and I explore this fascinating career journey and the ups and downs along the way. We talk about his personal experiences over the last 10 years and how a trip to Glastonbury changed his life. We talk about his success in leading Frog not once, but twice, and the secrets to turning that business around both times. We explore 
why his early startup experience was critical to his success with Accenture New Business and what consultancies like yours can learn from that startup mentality. And finally, we talk about his latest venture journey, why he launched the business and how they're helping global brands to tackle the challenges of engaging customers in the metaverse and Web 3.0. Andy shares so much brilliant advice in this episode to help you succeed in your career and live the life you want. So whether you are early on and trying to decide if consulting is for you, or maybe you've reached the top of your firm and you're still not feeling fulfilled, you're going to get so much from listening to what Andy has to say. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please enjoy my conversation with Andy Zimmerman. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Looking forward to uh, talking with you. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover, Andy, and quite a lot that I've never spoken to any guest before about, which is always exciting for me. Um, but before we do, it'd be great for my listeners to help them place you. If you could give a quick overview of your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I grew up in the States, in Pennsylvania, and uh, originally was involved with the arts and wanted to be a writer um, and actually uh, studied writing and uh, had a fellowship for a year traveling with circuses in Europe to write a novel about the experience. And then I realized I had to make a living and writing is a tough way to make a living. And so I actually went to business school uh, in New York and um, went into the accounting consulting profession, originally with Coopers and Librand, then PwC, and ran different parts of consulting there, including e-business back in the dot-com period, then got involved with a uh, Idea Lab, which is an incubator that uh, really the first big incubator for incubating.com companies, and then spent a, 10 years at Accenture, where, among other things, I started up Accenture Interactive and Accenture Mobility, which ultimately became Industry X, and then ran a small uh, design firm called Frog, basically over a seven-year period. And Frog, of course, is one of the iconic 50-year-old firm that's well-known for the work it's done for, with Disney and Apple and so forth. And then last year, or the beginning of this year, actually left Frog to start up a new company, private equity-backed, called Journey. So always have been in the technology services, professional services space, always been a little bit involved in like the next wave of what's out there in technology, and always uh, lived to, you know, in, in the States, either in New York or on the West Coast. Fantastic. Well, I think a very succinct overview for what has been... Uh quite a long and varied career, Andy. And I didn't realize, I want to ask you about the book you did write, but I didn't realize there was a book earlier in the journey in the circus as well. Why don't we, to start with, and maybe just because you, you didn't mention it, and we'll come on to everything you did, including, and I was looking on your LinkedIn earlier, and I saw the recent project you did with Walmart that I do want to come on to, but I'll sort of tease that for our listeners and we can hold that till the end. Something you've done that's quite unusual for my guests, and I asked this, and it's it's going somewhere for our listeners, but is actually the the book that you've written. So I don't think you wrote the circus book, I might be wrong, but you've obviously written your sort of novel. And maybe to start with, could you share what that is and, and what led you to write it? Because I think it's a really interesting discussion for other consultants who have kind of got those other passions, as it were. Sure. Yeah, I wrote a novel I hadn't mentioned, always wanting to be a writer and never letting go of that. But obviously, moving into business and being very busy, I kind of gave up that part of my life. And then I went through a bit of a, of a personal and spiritual awakening, which uh, had to do with meeting uh, someone who was a healer who worked with me to sort of help me 
kind of uh, take on a better perspective about my life and who I was and so forth. And it was quite a emotional experience. And in this experience, she told me that you will write a book about it, which I kind of said poo-pooed at the time. But then I did start writing and I decided not to write a memoir for kind of personal reasons and other reasons, but to write a novel, to write a work of fiction drawing upon some of the actual what happened in my life, but making it fictional, frankly, also to make it more entertaining. My life isn't maybe as as entertaining or James Bond-like as maybe if I use a novel. Now, it happened to take place in a company called uh, Ascendant, which, of course, is very similar to Accenture. And I was writing this originally while I was at Accenture. And so I kind of had fun with the fact that, you know, a bit of it's about Accenture and politics and what it's like in being a big management consulting firm. But it really was about a person's life's journey and how they began to rethink what's important to spiritually evolve. And the name of the novel is Journey, which happens to be the name of the company that, you know, that I now am CEO of and I started up later this year. So ultimately, I have, you know, uh, managed to you know, achieve one of my life objectives, was, which was to be a writer. It is a trilogy. I'm working, hoping to finish the second one called Journeying early next year. And then the third one is called Journey's End. The first one was the number one bestseller on Amazon for two weeks in metaphysical fiction and won an award from the Soul and Spirit magazine, which is a magazine that kind of covers, you know, spiritual types of uh, fiction and nonfiction. So, I keep my day job. You don't make money writing. That's one thing I learned. <laughs> but I, it's just a thrill for me, one. And, and I have such respect for anyone who's ever written a book, having spent seven years trying to write mine. I love that. And I, I want to come on to sort of how you kept that passion. But where did the healer come into this? Because, again, we, I know a little bit about your journey. But actually, what if you're happy to talk about what led you to see a healer and, and what made you select, I guess, that type of person to talk to because again i consultants as a as a group and and again i i mainly know the uk market here are quite cynical people like facts and figures and data and the sort of spiritual aspect can sometimes be downplayed in in that sort of what led you to feeling you needed to see a healer and what led you to a healer as opposed to i don't know a personal trainer yeah, uh, good question. And today I'd use the term synchronicity. Back then I didn't know what synchronicity meant. But what happened was I had uh, I was at a cocktail party. Um, it happened to be New Year's Eve, symbolically, the end of one year, the beginning of a new, another year. And actually re- uh, met a, uh, an English couple who uh, lived in Glastonbury, England. And uh, many of you, particularly this is more of an English audience, I've certainly heard of the Glastonbury Music Festival, but also many of you may know that Glastonbury has a very rich history of, uh, of spiritual movements even to this day. Um, and they lived there and they were talking about, you know, the fact that there were all sorts of people, Buddhists and neo-pagans and witches and fairies and all the sort of thing, which of course to me is a type A, management consultant at Accenture all sounded like ridiculously crazy. And then the uh, wife mentioned to me that she does work with a uh, soul reader and that she and her friends and, and other people that she's introduced her to have had these, these very positive experiences. And so I tucked that away. It didn't even occur to me that I would do something like that. However, I, I went over to Barcelona at the Mobile World Congress, which I would do every year. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll stop by Glastonbury on the way home just to check it out. And I did. And I went to the top of a little hill called Tour, which is very famous in Arthurian lore. 
and so forth. And what came to me was that I needed to have a soul reading with this soul reader. And then I, next time I was in Europe, I went to Glastonbury. I set up an appointment and not knowing this person and, and never even speaking to, to her, went into her house and she would do a reading, kind of looking at my different chakras. And that was the other thing, Nick, uh, she was saying, I'm looking at your root chakra to give you an idea how, how naive it was. I didn't even know what a chakra was. Um, I, so she said, now I'm looking at your whatever chakra and I'm thinking, what, what are you even talking about? Nonetheless, she records the reading. And you then listen to it over and over again. And it just had this enormous effect on me. And um, my life began to change and, and events began to occur that were actually seen in the reading. But I, you don't really understand them until they happen. And, uh, you know, I, to what's happened since then, I mean, I know it sounds really weird. And believe me, I think most people who know me professionally in consulting think I'm a very normal person. But when I would tell people the story or I would share with them parts of the manuscript of the book I started writing, and then, of course, when the book came out, Journey, uh, other people started reaching out to the soul reader. Some very famous people, um, you know, very famous business people and having different, you know, similar experiences. So one of the, uh, and I'll stop on the book, but one of the most gratifying things about the book, other than the, fa other than the fact that I managed to write it, is once in a while I'll get a LinkedIn message from someone I never, I've never heard of. And they would say, Andy, you know, I read your book and I reached out to the soul reader who identify in the acknowledgements and I've had a soul reading and it's changing my life. And thank you. And that just makes me feel so grateful. And of course, the soul reader won't tell me if, if anyone reaches out. She's very professional and respects people's privacy. And, uh, you know, I find, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I go, I mention this to people and, and business people, and I think they get a little uncomfortable, but I've gotten very brave. I mean, obviously, I came out with the book. And what I also find, however, is that business people are, are seekers as well and want to explore and Particularly, I think uh, newer generations of business people, you know, it's very important to them what's going on in their personal life as much as it is, you know, business. So particularly you're out in Silicon Valley or New York, you know, it's not crazy. I mean, people don't go like, oh, my God, you're nuts. You know, they go, can you kind of, you know, can I have the email of the soul reader type of thing? Wow. No, I, I think that's brilliant. And and I also think really powerful, given what you said around you know, your personality type and, and kind of. I guess, who you were as a person. And, and like you said, kind of you were that consultant who was reasonably, who was fairly dismissive of this prior to doing it and the benefits you've seen. And, and like you say, I mean, it's amazing to hear the, the impact it's had for others. You mentioned it there around kind of people who are coming into the business world now or younger leaders, but maybe to, to close this uh, sort of that section off, I'd, I'd love to get your take. If someone listening to this, you know, is kind of proverbially rolling their eyes and thinking, what, why would I do, why would I get a soul reading? Um, in fact, I'm not, I'll, I'll take the name afterwards because I'm not a million miles from Glastonbury here in the UK. But what would you say to them? You know, if, you know if, I'm sure people have come to you and gone, Andy, why, you know, this all sounds like a bit of nonsense. What would you say to them to make them think, well, maybe actually this could help you? One thing I've learned uh, over the years, because it's been about 10 years since I had the experience and, and, you know, it's been three years since the book came out. And what I've learned is people need to be drawn to having the experience, not convinced to have it. Because if you're not ready for it, then it's not going to work for you. So I think if it, if it, it's not so much believing in the hocus pocus part of it, because there's nothing really hocus pocus about it. I mean, you know, that 
it's a, it's a recording and, and nothing, you know, it's not like there's, you know, smoke and mirrors and all kinds of weird things. I think it's more an issue of, is there, do you have a feeling of inadequacy? Do you have a feeling of having lost touch with yourself? Do you know who you are? And I really look back to who you are is really someone say that, that at the age of, you know, a 15, 16, 17 year old person, that's kind of the purest version of who you are. And one of the things, and then I'll, I'll get off of this, but one of the things which is in the novel, which actually happened to me, is that in the reading, I was pointed to a, a dusty box in the attic of my parents' house. And in that attic and in that box was a sealed letter, nothing on the outside, which turned out to be a letter I wrote to myself when I was 17 years old. And it was a three-page handwritten letter, and it had a series of wow. questions, and obviously intended it from myself to my older self. Those questions and the tone uh, and the voice of that letter absolutely connected me to who I was and how far I had diverged from that. And so I think if you have that sense, then, you know, you would you would benefit from this sort of journey. And by the way, I think particularly if you're in if you're in business, the consulting industry, the travel, the intensity of it, the demanding clients, the the moving up, up or out kind of moving up the ladder, sort of all those energies can definitely be energies that move you away from yourself and trying to become someone else. And you don't have to do that. You can be yourself and be successful. That's good news. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think it's that longing for, I just feel something's missing. I don't, I'm not sure who I am is, is kind of a clue that, that this might be something beneficial. Amazing. Well, and I think really great advice, and and you know, also something people can take away that you, you can be yourself. And I, I think in a nice way, the world has become much better in that respect. If you can bring your true self and your the, who you are as a person to what you do, and I, I love by the way the letter as well. And I'm going to stop myself asking more about it because I think we could go on for two hours about about this journey because it's fascinating. But I almost to bring us back to the sort of consulting side, and it may be to your point around the timeline, these things are intertwined. But something that I found interesting when we were sort of catching up ahead of this, you know, you mentioned that actually, one of the things that let you have the time for the book was was the journey you went on with Frog and the time you had out sort of following your first stint there as, as the CEO. I guess for our listeners, could you maybe bit to take us back to go forward, but could you sort of talk about actually the whole journey with Frog and sort of how that came about? And then, yeah, we can dive into the different elements, but just to set the scene, particularly, like you said, for maybe our UK listeners, if they've not come across the firm before, who are they? Why did you join? And yeah, take us on that journey. Sure. So Frog Design, you know, is probably one of the two well-known iconic design firms have IDEO being the other one that we're constantly compared to and frankly compete with, a very fine firm. And probably a 50-year-old firm, which is very unusual for a design firm, founded by a fellow Hart, Hartmut Essinger, who arguably is probably one of the greatest designers in history. And he worked with Steve Jobs and designed the Macintosh, the Snow White design language, and so forth. But also SAP3, the Disney cruise ship, the reimagining of Disney World. I mean, these are all massive projects Frog's done. And so within the design industry, we're quite well known. Uh, everybody wants to work there coming out of school and so forth. So I was very blessed to be asked to run Frog, not being a designer myself, because it was experiencing financial difficulty. It was owned by a larger company, owned by KKR, and losing money. 
and I was brought in to try to fix it, which I was able to do despite the fact there's a fair amount of resistance to my coming on board because I was viewed as someone coming from Accenture, having no design background and uh, a bit of a slash and burn. I was referred to in some of the early emails, Darth Vader has arrived. So <laughs> as it turns, which, you know, really makes you feel good. And and then the other thing is creative people can be somewhat passive aggressive on a good day. So there was a, just a lot of energy and emotion and all that. Long story short, managed to turn the company around. We started making money, being profitable. You know, obviously morale kind of picked up. And at that point, I had recommended that we try to sell Frog. I can talk about this now because it's old news. And I was trying to sell it to Accenture, uh, which I thought would be a great home for it. And uh, what happened was we we wanted too much money for the company. And it led to an argument that I have with my superior uh, in the holding company. And it led to a parting of the ways. So Frog was not sold, and I was in a very nice way fired, so to speak. Now, this was very upsetting to me because I'm thinking I did a really great job. Frog's doing really well. This is my dream job. And why would I ever be fired from this? And so it was tough to take. So what happened, however, is now I had some time, and I could use that time to finish my novel. And actually, I was... I did some consulting, it's kind of complicated, but basically I spent a fair amount of time finishing the novel. And then, lo and behold, I get a call from the CEO of the company that had bought Frog since then, and he asked me, would you come back and run it again because Frog was losing money and in trouble again? So I kind of have this, and this is where you you learn to trust the universe and its wisdom in what appeared to be this sort of horrible, unfair thing that happened to me what actually happened was I was given the opportunity to finish my book, and then I was given the job that I love beyond any job I've ever had, and I could turn the company around for a second time. So, you know, what I've learned, I no longer question why things happened. I find, you know, let it be wind behind your back. Don't be, don't, don't be facing the wind and, and try to battle with it. But that was my story of Frog. Seven years, ran it twice, turned it around twice, and in the middle of it, wrote a book called Journey. So... You know, and I still and I love Frog to this day. I mean, you know, obviously a huge set of friends and hugely admired the company. Gosh, that, that is quite a ride. I will ask about the two stints there. And you mentioned Steve Jobs, and it does feel a little bit like, you know, Steve Jobs and, and how, how things went with him at Apple. Just on the book, because you touched there about trusting the universe, Andy. And and again, thinking of listeners who you know, want to take time to follow their passions, maybe it's a book, maybe it's art, maybe it's traveling the world. The question, I think, and maybe just you can describe how you sort of approach this is when you leave a job or you sort of finish, and particularly if it's not on your terms, sometimes there can be a desire to quickly get back in. You know, you you get all those uh, anxieties of what are others saying? What's the judgment? You know, is it me? I need to go and prove myself. And and I think something obviously that you did very differently is you went, no, I'm going to, to your point, trust the universe. I'm going to do, I'm going to do my book. And actually, I'd love to know, what gave you that confidence? Was it, to your point, the sort of, you know, the spiritual journey you'd been on? Was it some advice you'd been given by someone? What led you to say, actually, no, I'm going to take this time as opposed to, you know, pick up your phone, call all your contacts and sort of be in a new role in one, two, six months time? I think it's about listening. What I think people don't want to sound crazy or schizophrenic or whatever, but I think what we don't realize is we listen to a number of voices inside of ourselves. There's not just one voice. In some cases, medically, that's called schizophrenia or whatever, but even, <laughs> I, but even just as a normal person. 
And you always have to be careful about which voice you listen to. So, I mean, I'll take myself as an example. I have the voice of the 17-year-old that wrote the letter. And then I have the voice of someone who has been hired and fired and, uh, and you know, promoted and, uh, and moved over to Accenture, then move over to fraud, you know, uh, that person. And that person is kind of a gamesman. Playing a game kind of in a pinball machine is one of the metaphors I use in the novel. And he's always looking up and seeing what the score is. Now, to me, that's one of the fun things about business is that you can keep score. But the thing that you have to be careful about from a spiritual and self-love point of view is that score is not your score. I mean, your score is inside of you, not on a screen somewhere. And so I feel like I just felt more confident about, you know, not taking what happened personally, thinking it happens for a reason, embracing what it enabled, which was the time to write a book and trusting the universe. And in listening to the small Andy, this inner Andy, listening to the excitement of that Andy, that we can actually write this book and express it and take it out to the world. And much less of is someone going to think, well, Andy failed and he was fired and he's kind of like at the end of his rope and, you know, damaged goods or, you know, whatever that could be. Now I have a reasonably high level of confidence too, but I just think, you know, just have to be careful with you. are not just uh, caught up in the, and the protagonist in the, in the novel, not to give it away, but basically that's his problem. He's, he's playing a game. And, you know, human, you're not, you know, a character in a game, you're a human being. So and listening to that voice, that inner voice. And I, and once again, I, I don't want to turn your business thing into like, you know, la la land. But I mean, I just have to tell you, I do believe this. I mean, I experienced this. It's life changing. So firstly, Andy, I, I'm massively with you. And I'm very happy to talk about these things. because I, I do think in our world, while it's moving that way. It's not talked about enough. And to your point, you know, there's, there's things even five years ago, 10 years ago that were considered woo-woo that's now normal. You know, things like if you look at meditation, I mean, meditation, gosh, I don't even know how much the industry's worth, but everyone meditates now. And you think 10, 20 years ago, actually, was that something anyone did or the people who did were called crazy? So I, I'm very much with you on that. And I, I love your pinball analogy because I think and I've been guilty of this in the past as well, it, it can be very easy to keep score. And I think things like LinkedIn make it a lot easier to keep score because you can see your progression, your you know your grade, your client. It, it becomes very easy to see that. But like you say, actually, that inner focus is, is really important. I didn't ask, but I, I'm going to because you've now said it again. What did 17-year-old Andy say to you that had such a profound effect? Oh, some of the questions were sort of what you expect, like, are you married? Do you have children? You know, basic things. So predictive. But the ones that were really haunting were ones around the fact that um, Andy said, um, I always find it a little hard to figure out how to fit in. But I worry when I do fit in, I'm not who I sh who I really am. Do you still have that feeling? You know, and there are a couple like that, which really were capturing this idea of it's almost like you feel dragged away from your true self because of everything around you. And of course, as a 17-year-old, that's called peer groups and and that sort of thing. But look, as a 50-year-old, you still have peer groups. I mean, you know, you're 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 a 17-year-old with older clothing. You know, I mean, so it was that part, that haunting sort of warning coming from this young, barely in the world person who already sensed this tension in life and asking me, how was I dealing with it? 
And of course, the answer to the time, and I won't, I mean, honestly, it was a very emotional experience. I cried, you know, as I'm reading this. And, and he was sort of asking, well, how, how are you doing with this? And, and the answer, of course, that was shortly after the reading was, well, not very well, actually. You know, not very well at all. I would say now I I, I can answer younger Andy and say, actually, I, I'm doing well, but I got to be careful because I can, you know, it's a slippery slope going back to old habits. But that part of the letter was just very haunting to me. And, you know, just he, he laid out, you know, I mean, here, 17 year old kid laying out what his 50 year old equivalent was dealing with, was going to be dealing with. And now, can I mention one other thing? On, and, then, and then we can talk about whatever you want. But one point I would make with people who are still still haven't dropped off thinking they got there on, they were on a podcast with a nut job. I'm going to take it even further. I believe getting yourself into that state of mind of trusting the universe and being human is actually a superpower in business. And I'll give you one example. I'll try to keep it quick. A person, a very close friend of mine was having difficulty with her boss. And she was having calls where she was trying to get things done and would always end up angry and hostile and inconclusive. And so in talking to me about this, she was very frustrated. What do I do? And I said to her, I think you need to love her. You know, and it was like, what? I said, you need to love your boss. And of course, she's looking at me like, and this is in a very, very large, hardcore company, right? And at very high level, the both of both of these people are near, you know, one click below the CEO of the company. And I said, here's what's happening. You frighten her. You are a relatively attractive woman and very smart and this, that, and the other thing. So what happens, you get on the call, you scare her. And when fear kicks in, of course, the reptilian part of the mind kicks in. And when that happens, the person no longer hears what you're saying. I mean, this is this is like biochemically true, right? And I said, that's what's happening. You're stimulating her, her reptilian brain, and she doesn't hear a word you're saying. You're not having a conversation. You're just like, you know, at an impasse. So I said, next time you're going to have a call with her on video, I want you to spend five minutes beforehand, close your eyes, and think about her. Think about her as a mother. Think about her as a daughter, as a wife. Think about what she did that morning getting ready for work. Think about what she had to eat. Just all that with your eyes closed. And then when you're ready, hit join. And talk to her, but love her. And I guess she did it. And afterwards, she called me and said, oh, my God, Andy, we just had the most productive call I've ever had with her. And we really got into things and made some decisions. So fast forward three months later, this person calls uh, my friend and my friend was up for a promotion, a big promotion. And she calls her to tell her she's promoted. And then she says, you know, Susie, that's not her name. I have to say, about three months ago, I don't know what happened, but I just felt we started communicating much better. And right now, I have to tell you, I communicate better with you than anyone else in the company. And I just want to thank you for that. So, you know, it's a superpower. I think, Andy, I, I really, I fully agree with you. And and I think there's so much, you know, what I find amazing so with the things you're saying as well is actually how a lot of this has existed for years, but but hasn't had the whether it's awareness, whether it's the prevalence that, that you it should do. So a couple of things to your point on uh, those sort of inner voices. I think there's a very old book, The Magic of Thinking Big. I don't know if you've read that by David Schwartz. I mean, we're going back. I reread it time by time, and it always makes me smile because it talks about the, the fact some intrepid explorers are digging the tunnel between England and France, which was 
you know, the Euro Tunnel was built about 50, 60 years ago, but it shows you the kind of how thoughts become things. And I do think, you know, that talks about what you say and to yourself having a huge impact. The other one is, and, you know, I'm with you on this. I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. I mean, again, I might be alienating listeners with this, but I think a lot of, you know, what you've said there around a visualization and, and actually kind of, if you aim for it, you get it. You know, we've all heard about the BMW sort of, you want a BMW, you see a BMW. And I, I think the example you've just given there, I think brings it home more so because of the, and we'll talk about your sort of um, Accenture career momentarily, but talk, shows that this works just as well at the senior levels of consulting firms as it does in kind of, to your point, the kind of spiritual world of Glastonbury. So no, Andy, I think, you know, I think it's a brilliant example. I'm sure more will come out. So I'm I'm not going to ask for any more at the moment, but I'm sure as we go through, more will come. And and maybe actually to the point you mentioned around your journey with Frog, you know, you you were sort of trusting the universe. You you wrote the book, you got this call from the new owner. It may just be that the ownership changed and that made it an obvious decision. But did you have any trepidation about going back? And and almost what what did you ask yourself? Was it a no-brainer or were there some questions, concerns you asked yourself before saying, Yeah, I'm I'm jumping back into this? Yeah, I think a very good question, Nick. And what I'd say, it was a relatively easy decision. And here's why. One is that I really loved Frog. That hadn't changed by leaving. Secondly, there were some things that I felt I wanted to get done at Frog. And of course, I ran out of time first time. The third thing is that I had a different owner and a different CEO who, although I didn't know him that well, uh, I just felt just based on one meeting, if you will, that we could have a better relationship. And then finally, to be honest with you, a number of frogs who got wind of the fact that I may come back were very, very energetically, you know, like, please come back. So I knew I would be welcomed back. And so that all drove me. It just seemed like the perfect decision and opportunity. And sure enough, when I did come back, instead of the first time when everyone referred to me as Darth Vader has arrived, the second time I came back, everyone kind of thought, okay, Andy's come back to save us. And what I would say to people, because I go to these town halls and I would refer to what it was like the first time I joined Frog to run it versus this time. And I said, in some ways, I prefer the first time where the expectations were so low that I could exceed them. Now I'm coming back and Frog was losing money again and all that. And, you know, the expectation is, well, now everything's going to be fine. And of course, no, not necessarily. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not a magician. I mean, you know, it's, uh, and so it was kind of funny the second time it was so wonderful. You almost were, you know, afraid of expectations being too high, but it was a very easy decision for me. Um, Frog just is, you know, this magical place and the work is great and the people are amazing. So uh, it was great to go back. And you might not be able to talk about this, so stop me if you can't, but you, you mentioned you joined twice, you turned the business round twice. And obviously, yeah, Frog's a substantial business, to your point, really strong reputation. It's a very big question, but if you could summarize kind of what were the key levers you pulled to turn that business round? And were they the same levers twice or was it different levers when you were Darth Vader versus... I don't know if there was a Star Wars analogy used. Were you Obi-Wan? Were you Luke? I don't know what they called you, or was it the Star Wars references died after the first time? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was a, both times there's a, there was a, a little bit of house cleaning in terms of uh, maybe there was a little too much tolerance for low performers around the edges. And so, you know, that, that was kind of easy if it's a low performer. 
particularly if they're expensive. Uh, you know, we really, really can't afford to have that. So that was part of it. I think the other thing is just understanding the, the dynamic and a creative agency consulting environment where, and people joke that, you know, you don't want a creative running a creative agency. The fact is that you can't just be as a general manager. The criteria can't be how much people like you. It's got to be how are the results doing? Because if you really care about the people and want to protect them, you need to financially perform. And so don't get confused between being popular and being caring about your people. And uh, particularly when you're in a sophisticated set of creatives that can be highly manipulative, whether it's consumers or their boss, you know, you just can't fall for that. And so you need to be liked, but not pandered to, to being liked. And I think that's sort of something that, that's a little tough to, to handle. And, and then, of course, there's always luck. I mean, you know, the market changing. We did launch something, Frog Ventures, which allowed us to start working with smaller companies. That was hugely successful. And that was something I wanted to do the first time, but I never got to it in time. So that was kind of a strategic business model change. We opened up. We went to Nearshore Studios in India and Mexico City which we hadn't done before, that was a huge plus. So, you know, it, it's kind of Harvard Business School sort of thing, some of it. And then some of it is this sort of uh, softer, you know, knowing how to work with creatives in a way that's very productive for them and for investors. Yeah, that's a really useful overview, Andy. And I think your point around you can love your people without being popular and is a really important one, particularly as we over here, but I, I think it's the same in the US, we're moving towards a recession. And with all of the focus on well-being and looking after your team, which is critical, sometimes you can lose sight of, well, you still need to make money. And if you don't, there is no team. And you know, sadly, we've seen some of that in the tech world with businesses that were big, had a lot of funding, but that dried up. And I, I think is a really important point, like you say, of if there's no money coming in, you might have no business for people to love. So getting that right is the first, you know, is most important. Um, I, interesting what you said about Frog Ventures. And I think it might be a nice segue to, I know we're jumping around the chronology a bit, but you obviously spent a lot of time at Accenture. And, you know, this brings to life, I think, some of the things we talked about earlier of actually the mindset, the way you approach business and life. It works in big, very high growth organizations, you know, very focused, high performing ones. And actually, you were involved at the start of what was Accenture Interactive, which again, I know has become a huge part of Accenture's business now, but wasn't when it was, you know, you plus a few people. This is as much for my own interest as our listeners, Andy, but I'd, I'd love to know the origin story of Accenture Interactive and, and how that came to being. Well, yeah, it really is kind of interesting. I, a number of things I, I don't think people realize about it. One was that the, the seed was planted for Accenture Interactive over 15 years ago. And so, you know, one truth is things take a lot longer than you think. And people lose track of that. Like they say, OK, Facebook goes public. Yeah, but Facebook, you know, went public after, you know, 10 years or 15 years or whatever. You don't know how long things take. So the brilliant thing that Accenture did, and I want to give, well, I should give a bunch of people credit, but let's say Bill Green, who was CEO of Accenture at that time and was involved in recruiting me into Accenture at a fairly senior level. He and the team decided to create something called Accenture New Businesses. Probably today we'd call it an incubator. But basically the idea was we wanted to create new businesses that use different business models from consulting and outsourcing, but were adjacent to what Accenture did. 
And I was asked to run this because of my background at Idea Lab, the incubator. And as Bill said, because uh, I was running a fairly big, I was running the comms industry globally for Accenture, and that was a $3 billion business. And now I'm running new businesses, which basically is zero. And I'm sort of Bill, you know, I, I kind of would rather run a big business. And he said, well, you're one of the few people we have that's worked with small businesses and startups and venture. So we need you here. So I decided I would do it. Well, you didn't have any choice, right? It's Accenture. So, but involved with me was Tim Breen, who, who at that time was running strategy, corporate strategy for Accenture. Jeffrey Merrihue, who has a heavy marketing background, and eventually Mike Sutcliffe. All, when I say co-founded, that's why I'm saying there's a number of people involved. So what we the, the remit was so broad. We had a, a money for organic build of technology platforms, and then we had M&A money. And Accenture Interactive started out around the idea of optimizing websites. So, you know, the internet was clearly there. This is around 2009. But, you know, companies are building websites. But, you know, how do you optimize them, both from, uh, you know, impressions and commerce point of view? And so we started buying analytic engines that you then can put on top of websites and kind of help, you know, on the fly design them better, you know, find lost links, stuff like that tiny companies, but the business model was, you know, you pay a monthly subscription fee or per user. It wasn't consulting. It wasn't outsourcing. But these were tiny companies. Uh, while I was there, we bought seven of them and kind of knitted them together. So we kind of had this engine that could analyze website performance and, and do a little bit of designing. And then that, so that's why it was called Accenture Interactive, because it was, it was really looking at websites. Well, then what happened after I left and tried to sell Frog to Accenture, they ended up buying Fjord instead, which is a very respectable design firm, and started moving up the chain in terms of like now designing websites, not just optimizing them, but designing websites and designing digital product. Then ultimately, they bought um, Droga, you know, moving into the traditional media agency business. They bought a ton of design firms. Uh, but the initial sort of germ of an idea with Accenture Interactive was website optimization, which is why it was called Accenture Interactive, which by, you know, last year, uh, David Droga changed the name to Accenture Song because Interactive sounds a little dated. And it is dated because that's what that was how we started in 2009. And now it's this multi-billion dollar business. But I give credit to Accenture. Obviously, I was there 10 years. I still have a fair amount of Accenture stock. I do believe it's one of the best managed companies in the world, in the world, not just in consulting. But I give them a lot of credit for creating this new businesses and really walling it off from the rest of the firm, making some serious investments at that time and just building businesses from scratch. I mean, it, it, they, they just did a really good job because out of that, you got Accenture Interactive and you got Accenture Mobility, which became ultimately Industry X. And these are platform businesses that you know, you you get revenue while you sleep. And it's still a relatively small part of Accenture, but a growing part. And that's sort of where Accenture Interactive came from. Wow. It's, uh, well, and I think your point around the origin and the length of time some of these things take is really interesting because you, you sometimes you do forget it's not, you know, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. But to be on the, the ground floor and sort of the starting point of that must have been amazing. And I I'd be fascinated, Andy. How was that shift for you and for the leadership team? You know, you mentioned obviously you, you were running the global comms business. You'd spent you know the best part of you know, your career running big consulting businesses, you know, PwC before and, and Accenture, and suddenly you're into a team 
where you, you are zero revenue. I'm sure you had people, but it was nowhere near as big. It was, I assume, much more hands-on. How was that actually for you and the team? And, and how, if at all, did you have to adapt from going from you know that three billion business to ground zero and that starting point? Well, I think, to tell you the truth, I don't think I would have been successful at it if I hadn't had the experience with Bill Gross at Idea Lab during the dot-com period. So at Idea Lab, you know, our idea of a company was a graphics designer and two of us with an idea. And that's all you had, right? I'll give you an example. Now, I don't know people who don't know Bill Gross. Just to, there's two Bill Grosses. One is a very famous bond trader. And, and then Bill Gross, the entrepreneur who started up 110 companies, 15 in Palm Public, I mean, eToys and Net Zero and GoTo.com and so forth. So I'm talking about the incubator entrepreneur. So what, here's the way things work there. We're sitting around the room. We're saying, you know, we're selling books. We're selling music. We're selling a lot. We're selling uh, toys, you know. And the question comes up, can we sell cars online? Okay. And everyone's looking at each other and said, no, nobody's ever going to buy a car. You know, it's $50,000. No one's ever going to buy a car on a website. Okay. So Bill, being Bill, says, well, I don't know. Let's see. And he draws a few screens, gives it to a graphics guy, tells him to go next door to the bookstore, get a Kelly Blue Book. And I think they're in the UK as well. These are the books that have all the prices of cars and stuff. Yeah. And he says, could you put up a couple screens? buy the card search terms from goto.com, which which was a uh, preceded Google. Google didn't exist yet. And and buy card search terms and set this thing up and run it tonight, which he does. So next morning we come in and we're talking about this stuff. And someone says, hey, by the way, whatever happened with that car site? And Bill goes, yeah, I don't know. And then we go over and the, and the poor graphics guy is fast asleep at his desk, right? So Bill wakes him up and says, hey, what happened? Did you get the site up? Did anything happen? And the kid wakes up, he smiles, says, yeah, he said, we sold three cars. So, you know, and Bill's like, shut it down, right? So that's another way of how, how you build a business, right? It's just that you don't argue and you don't hire McKinsey to do a study and whether or not people are going to buy cars on the internet. You put up a site and you sell three cars. And that became ultimately Cars Direct, which was, you know, a very early successful car commerce site. So learning to think that in that way, in terms of building businesses, was what I could bring to bear when I got to Accenture. You know, that if I had not had that experience, I think I'd be, it would be more like a classic big time consultant saying, well, how can I do this? I need 100 people and you know, I, all that sort of thing. I love that example, Andy. And I, and I think so, you know, true then and even truer today, you know, there's so many tools where actually you or I could go and do that, you know, landing page and, and build those. But I, I think your point is really powerful of test with the consumer and see what happens. There's an interesting question in that though. And, and you mentioned that Accenture had walled off new biz. So the, the answer to this may be obvious, but you got that to your point of, if you're a you know consultant, you'd been 40 years in your career, you were used to hundreds of people making decks before you did anything. You would be quite nervous of that approach. How did you get, I guess, you know, your superiors or, or your sort of peers in Accenture comfortable with you doing that or, or I guess to your point, did you not because it was walled off? How did you approach that? Well, I mean, I think the nice thing, Accenture's sort of management system, sometimes it can be a little claustrophobic um, in, in the sense of it being uh, so big and so process-driven. You know, you can kind of feel like you're in a big machine. On the other hand, it does work. And so 
basically, you know, it was a very strategic decision. There's a group of about 40 people that put together a strategy for five-year strategy. And one of the elements of that was to just create this new business function. And then in looking at, well, what, how would we run it? They, you know, the conclusion was looking at best practice and so forth that, you know, wall it off, you know, don't try to integrate, experiment and so forth and so on. And, you know, here's, here's some resources you might need just to kind of, you know, so it wasn't like one person. And then I think Bill, you know, just was relatively smart to say, gee, actually, I don't think I'll take the, the partner that's running the Exxon account where we're doing $500 million worth of outsourcing and say, hey, could you start up a new businesses? You know, I think he meant it when he said, you know, you're, you, you've done that. And most of the senior leadership of Accenture has been Accenture their whole life and operated at that scale. And so I think it was a good idea to put me into that job and get it off the ground. I mean, Mike Sutcliffe, who had his, his whole career was at Accenture, and he ultimately became the head of Accenture Digital, which was a combination of Accenture Mobility and Interactive. He's a very large client, large, you know, running big P&Ls. And to his credit, he played the role after I, I left. He took, he took uh, them together as Accenture Digital, and he scaled the business. You know, he took a business that probably at that point was doing a few hundred million in revenue and took it up to, you know, wherever it is now, four or five billion. So I thought they were really good about, you know, who runs it when, what are the rules of engagement? You know, it's, it's, it's a real success story. It's really interesting to hear. And, and I think particularly for anyone listening who is in a larger firm like Accenture, your point of actually the benefits of walling off if you're doing one of those new business ventures or, or just something you want to incubate, actually not trying to suffocate it too early or integrate it too early, give it that room to breathe test. And you, you mentioned there around the scale, because I think in our conversation, we've talked a little bit about you know your time with Bill and, and doing the quick website. We've talked about you know you bought some little platforms, but it's probably worth sharing with our listeners. You, know, you scaled that business to a very significant business, and I'd be interested how you did that. You know where we talked, you you bought these seven platforms. Was it then just that you integrated those, sold sold those to um, sort of current clients? What was it? Something else and. You mentioned around the, the split in sort of what was new business and then you led mobility after that kind of actually how much did that have an impact on the growth journey and, and where you took that business unit? Yeah, I mean, I think what we took advantage of in, in the scaling part of it is in the case of Accenture, and I, I think there are obviously other firms that can say the same thing about, you know, Accenture is very client centric firm and has very deep, close relationships with clients. The account partners just are dedicated to their clients' success. And so if I have a new widget and I have a business proposition for that widget, the account partners are very happy to take them to the client. It will be very qualified. You'll end up in a meeting with the right people. I mean, this is something that as a small company, you know, you just wouldn't have. And so when these analytic engines and so forth, you know, we're ready to go out to, you know, to, te to test or to implement, you know, there's a lot of very excited partners who want to introduce you to, and that's one of the issues of protection, like, you know, you, you, because otherwise you get swamped and then you sell one to, I mean, I think one of our, now this is really going back in time, but one of our original sales was to Procter & Gamble, which obviously is a huge, you know, account to sell a web optimization tool into, right? And when I, it's a tool, but obviously there's a lot of consulting, IT consulting around the implementation and so forth. So, you know, the tool in some ways is probably the least, 
attractive thing from Accenture's point of view because you're selling in a lot of consulting services as well or outsourcing services. But, you know, you get the meeting. Now you have Procter & Gamble as a client. Okay, that makes it easier for other clients you go to. So from a sales and business development point of view, we tend it to scale using the Accenture because it is so powerful, right, that channel. But from the creation of the tool and the product management and marketing of the tool, that's what we kind of kept pretty walled off. And the reason for that, one of the reasons is, you know, just in general in the consulting industry, consulting industry is notorious for not being able to do product. And the reason for that is because they customize everything. You know, client says, well, can I have it white instead of black? Consultants and DNA is, yes, I can make it black, you know. And of course, if you're trying to do a platform or a product, what you have to learn to do, like if you're Oracle or SAP, you say, no, it doesn't do that, or it will do that the next generation. And so part of the walling off was on the product side, on the M&A side, on the product strategy side, you know, we controlled that, but we leveraged the Accenture distribution and account relationships. So that's that was the kind of the, one of the key things to the success of it. Now, that makes a lot of sense. And it raises an interesting question, actually, Andy. And, and one, just because I, I know a number of people who are in firms like Accenture and, and their peers and businesses that are acquired into those firms as well, because you know they've got a product offering, you know, they, they might have an analytics engine, let's say. And I'm interested because to your point, on one side, having that sales network is a really powerful tool. You know, you take your product and Accenture can sort of fire it out to thousands of clients through those partners. I guess the for some people, there's probably a question that says, well, in our case, actually, how do we get traction with those people? Because, you know, just like you were going to these partners with your analytics, I suspect, you know, there were 40, I think you said 40 other sort of elements of this strategy, 40 other people doing the same. Now, it might have been you, you know, you were coming in from a very senior level. So, you know, there was a hierarchy, but actually for anyone who maybe has one of these offerings in their firm, actually, how can they get cut through with the right partners and I guess not get lost in the noise of everyone else? Well, one is uh, when I was doing new business at Accenture, I think we're, we were at about 230,000 people. And now I haven't looked recently. I think it's 760,000 or 780,000. I think Accenture acquires, at least I track the stock in the news because I am a shareholder. They seem to acquire a new company about every three to four days. You know, now I don't know how big they are, but some are, I think are bigger than anything I acquired. Some I'm sure are very small. So it's a very different world today at Accenture. And I think a number of these firms, the scale is much higher and the number of new things being brought into the business is much higher. So I don't have a good answer for you because I don't work at any of them anymore. I can imagine that one is um, having had one experience with a company I was associated with being bought by Accenture recently. I, I know that they really are very, you know, they have a sort of cookie cutter approach. And I don't mean that in a bad way of, you know, how they're brought in, how long they stay independent, which elements are integrated first and so forth. So I do think, you know, after they, I mean, they've acquired, I don't know, maybe hundreds and hundreds of companies now, you know, that they kind of are very sensitive what works and doesn't work. But yeah, I would think as an account partner now at Accenture, you know, it's been 15 years uh, since I haven't been there, or no, maybe 10 years. You've got to have like just this incredible potpourri of, of things you can take to a client. So how do you decide what you want to bring to a client? And how do I as a star, as a new company, get any attention, you know, 
I think that's a very, you know, account planning, internal marketplace sort of thing. I'm sure are some of the ways they're dealing with it, but probably, yeah, the, the scale of growth. And like you say, the scale of opportunities has increased a lot since, since like you say, you were there and may, maybe next guest, Andy, I'll have to get someone who's currently at one of one of your former colleagues who's currently at Accenture. We can ask them. They will tell us about how they do it. I guess probably one, but maybe two last questions on, on your Accenture time, because to your point, I'm conscious it was a little while ago, but you know, Again, thinking today for anyone who is doing this themselves, you, you mentioned, you know, we've talked a lot about the successes of what was New Beers and Mobility and Became Song. I'm sure there were some challenging times and, and some tough times. And again, thinking more about today's world and probably the journey you've been on, kind of what were some of those challenges? And actually, if anyone is launching a new business like you did today in a firm like Accenture, what would you almost tell them to do differently or, you know, things that they can do to accelerate that process or not go down some of those dead ends or pitfalls that, you know, may have been learnings for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say, let me, let me, if I can be allowed, if I take it up a level from just Accenture, and let's call them Please. large management consulting IT services firms, because I don't want to sound too specific. Um, I think that if I were being asked to start up a, a new entity within the company, or I'm being bought by one of these entities, what I'd really want to want to probe is do they understand the importance of the soft part of this? So when they're acquiring you or something, business plans, numbers, and all that, of course, they due diligence that they all do that roughly the same. But from a soft point of view, how many degrees of freedom do they have within their infrastructure, whether it's HR, finance, whatever it is, such that you have enough degrees of freedom that these different kinds of entities can sit in under the same umbrella. And it, some companies are kind of one size fits all. Other companies are like holding companies and then there's something in between. Holding companies, okay, I mean, it just means that it's more of a financial transaction and you continue to run your own company. One size fits all, it, you know, I would be very concerned about that because it doesn't. So I, when looking at any of these companies, whether it's Accenture or Wipro or McKinsey or um, whatever, I would just say, have they reflected in their infrastructure and processes the sort of divert potential diversity that needs to be addressed? Because, you know, if you're a media agency, it's very different than a cybersecurity entity, which is very different from a strategy consulting group. Can they articulate how they co have these cohabit and also work together? And I think it's the holy grail, right? I mean, it's the you know, as you scale, that's what you have to do. And I think some firms do it better than others. And I'm not really, to be honest, I'm just not up to date on, you know, every one of them and how they're doing. But I, I think that's the critical thing. If I were to try to be an incubator inside one of them or I was looking at being acquired by one of them. I think a great point. And, and again, to things that can sometimes get lost in our our industry, like you say, that softer side. And, you know, we touched on some of that from a personal perspective earlier, but actually, as a culture, as a firm, like you say, firms can be very different. Design creatives versus management consultants culturally you know, don't always get on. And like you say, thinking about that's really important. I'm mindful of what you said around sort of actually the time that has elapsed. And I, I'd be keen to bring us up to date. And we've, we've used the word journey a lot. We've talked about your book journey. I've talked about your personal journey. Now keen to talk about your business journey, Andy, because I think not only are you doing some fascinating work in, in an area that I've not spoken to anyone else on in the podcast, but I think it's going to be really interesting for the world over the next you know, 10 years or however long. But 
I'd love to sort of bring to life, I guess, what you are doing now. And maybe before we dive into some of the the sort of what and the detail, maybe if you could give an overview of actually sort of how Journey came to be and why you launched the firm and, and what you set out to do. Sure. Well, a little bit of the background is that around this time last year, early fall of last year, because I'd been uh, part of an acquisition, Frog was part of another acquisition, and uh, we were sort of changing organizations. So I felt it was a good time for me to move on because I had been CEO for five to six years. I have this theory that you can, as a CEO, because I this is you know this the company Journey is my third CEO job. So it's like if you can contribute for five to six years. I think it's going to be a little different for a founder, but for a professional manager, five or six years, they get the best of what you have to give to that company. And then I think it's very healthy. Accenture actually does this reasonably well. They don't mandate it, but they, you know, it's time to move on. New, fresh blood. And there's all kinds of reasons why this is good versus, say, having, what's his name, run GE for 30 years, right? Yeah, not to take a Jack Welch or something. Anyway, so I decided to move on. So I was starting to think, I, I actually was thinking, do I finish my second and third novel? Do I do some consulting with, with Frog or just in general? And I was doing a meditation as we were discussing meditation. And uh, yes, and that meditation led to two things. One was me saying, if I really love Frog, I need to step aside and let fresh blood come in. And I had in mind who that would be. And then it all, this idea for this company came, to, came into my head. And uh, I, wrote, I just started frantically writing it down uh, before I forgot it. And uh, that little uh, three-page Word document became my investor sort of pitch. And in it, I talked about the fact that I wanted to do this company that focuses on the end customer journey and touch points that are going through evolutionary or revolutionary change. And the revolutionary change may be that it's a touch point that didn't exist before, for example. And then for that, for those pieces of the journey and customer journey, I wanted to buy the leading edge agencies in each of those spaces and then go to a client and say, we will help you reimagine and build the next generation of your end customer journey in the areas that are, that are changing the most and are, are going to be the most important. And I had in mind a few companies that I had uh, had relationships with to start. And that's what happened. So I went to very small private equity firms. They liked the idea. I had a number of firms offer, you know, to to, to back me. And uh, that led to me departing Frog at the end of last year and literally on January 2nd, launching this company Journey. That name for the company did not come from me, despite the fact that I'd written a novel called Journey. It was actually a fellow Jim Citrin who some people may know, very famous headhunter who's kind of been a counselor to me and read my book. And I was calling it Project X, and he's the one who said, I have the perfect name for your company. I said, what? And he said, Journey. So so people think that well, Andy is calling it Journey because of his book. No, it just, you know, the universe contributed that name, or Jim Citrin did anyway. And so we bought a company that does physical design space, but is particularly well known for using technology to reimagine an experience of physical space. Take things like the JetBlue terminal in JFK, which was first to implement iPads as part of the passenger experience, a, um, a Sloan Kettering outpatient cancer um, facility, which used um, wearables and no check-in, 
a learning environment and what is a very tough, you know, emotional place to be going to and so on and so forth. And then we bought a company which is building out applications and experiences in voice, Alexa, Siri and so forth, which is, you know, a very pervasive technology, not really being exploited that much. It's a $40 billion voice commerce business without even trying. And then we bought a company that specializes in the metaverse. And uh, then we'll be buying, well, later this fall, we will be announcing a few other acquisitions in related areas. And we're doing some really cool work in all these spaces. And we believe they start coming together because when you think about designing your end customer journey, you need to think about the physical and how that relates to metaverse. A famous a client of ours, but someone who famously did something early on, Nike did a metaverse in Roblox, and then they took a version of that and have it in their destination stores, uh, physical stores. So just the blurring of sort of these worlds are something that we see in the future. So that's the idea of Journey and uh, you know, working with top brands in the world, at having a lot of success and you know, very exciting. Well, I, I think that's fascinating. And I think I really like, Andy, the frame around actually it's, you know, that customer touch points actually looking holistically, you know, still considering the physical and also the, the metaverse, because I think you know, the metaverse gets a lot of press, some good, some bad, but you hear everything from no one's ever going to go to a shop anymore to, you know, actually it's it's a waste of time. And I, I'd love, I think, for you to bring it to life for our listeners, because obviously our listeners work with large corporates you know in the us it'd be the fortune 500 here it's the FTSE 100 but it large corporate organizations and i think technologies like voice technologies like you know everything that underpins the metaverse and sort of web3 people can sometimes think it's a bit far off but you know something and, and just because i know it's current and i was just looking at your linkedin ahead of today and i i know you launched with walmart a project that sort of brings this to life and i'd love if you could just talk a bit more about that because i think as brands go, and I'm saying this is a Brit, so forgive me if this is incorrect sort of for an American audience, Walmart is seen as very traditional, very good business, but traditional business. They're embracing this. So I'd love to understand more about how you see those channels for businesses like Walmart and, and yeah, a bit about actually what you did with them. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it just came out Monday. Very excited. Uh, a major project for us and for uh, Walmart, our client. And I can't talk about everything just because, frankly, there are future things, as they've alluded to in, in their press release, that are planned. But I can talk about uh, some of what's going on. And, you know, basically, uh, I think I can speak on behalf of just not just Walmart, but a number of companies feel a little burned in terms of they missed the uh, first round with the web and then they missed mobile and they don't want to miss this one. So there's a little bit of that going on just in general. However, the the other part of this though is is very similar to what web 1.0 is is commercialization it's like but i don't understand i can get 100 million people coming to my website but it costs me 100 million dollars to do that from a customer acquisition point of view and then they're not i'm not making any money and that's exactly where it was at web 1.0 but what i tell people is that it also was the genesis of google amazon Facebook. I mean, you take the cumulative market cap of what came out of 1.0, it's a scary portion of the total market cap of, you know, the worldwide indexes, okay? And that's only 20 years ago. So in mobile, obviously, Apple, Samsung, you know. So I think we have to think about this. Is is there frothiness? Is there silliness? Is there 
bad businesses being created in this frothy Web3 metaverse? Absolutely. Absolutely, there is. So do I wait until, you know, am I Sears and I wait until the dust settles and I figure out, oh, that's how I make money. And then I go into it. Well, no, because by that time, you know, whatever, the next Amazon will have taken that over. And so I think that's driving some of this. Now, what we did for Walmart specifically is we did help them with their strategy. I mean, that has to do with things like there's a lot of platforms out there. And I don't want to bore the audience, but, you know, you have Roblox, you have Decentraland, Sandbox, you have the Meta Horizons from Facebook, you have Apple about to come out with some things. I mean, you know, there's easily a dozen platforms, some of which are AR, VR, some of which are more gaming that are out there. And so one of the things is, where do you play? You know, the second thing is there's different traditions, AR, VR, highly immersive, high fidelity. And then you have the gaming traditions like Fortnite and Roblox that are gamey, cartoonish, lower res. They have different demographics. They have different levels of audience. So just that alone, sifting through that takes a lot of time. Then you get into strategic intent. What is your intent? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to sell things? Are you trying to do a brand kind of modification? Are you trying to just get impressions? You know, I mean, what are you trying to do? And then after that, it's like, okay, here's, let's do this platform because these demographics now the issue is it's a different world. Your brand has to adapt to the platform, not the other way around, particularly in the more gaming-centric platforms. You're right. Your brand has to adapt to them. They're not going to adapt to you. And that's a tough one, particularly when you're talking about you know, mega brands like a Walmart or Nike. I mean, you know, they spent their you know, a century building this brand and so forth. So Basically, at that point, we're saying, okay, now we're going to start designing. So we start designing worlds. In the case of Walmart, we we rolled out two worlds initially. One is called Walmart Land, which is kind of the core retail spaces in Walmart with some entertainment. It has a disco. It has a movie theater. It has different things like that. And then we have the Walmart Playground, which is sort of what it sounds like. It's a toy. I mean, I'm being very simplistic here. In fact, uh, Walmart would shake them. But I mean, it's it's basically the toy section of the store. We don't want you to think of it that way. We want we want you to think of it as you know, babes in Toyland experience. You know, not aisles in a store by any means. The whole point of the metaverse is, I mean, you can play with the toys, you can be the toy, you know, and that sort of thing. And then there'll be some other things coming out. They have announced that we'll we'll have a festival, a music festival next week with some very, very, you know, top, very hot artists. And you can imagine that there's other things that could be built beyond what we're already building. So that's sort of, it came out on Monday. It's gotten very nice critical reviews. Roblox has featured it as as the, you know, new world uh, for the week to go to. Very high like ratings. Roblox is a whole rating system. And yes, Nick, when you said about the brand, the look and feel of this is a little different than what you would expect from something like Walmart. And that's very purposeful, you know, because they this is a very a much younger demographic on Roblox. But, you know, you need to have a look and feel that would attract that kind of audience. And so there's also a bit of a brand shift here that you can do in, in a metaverse that, that maybe in a more effective way than you do with TV advertising. You know what I mean? So it's pretty fascinating. And, and and just the logistics of this is that you go into, for those of you who've never used Roblox, 
you go in as a character, you can dress in a, in a campy Walmart vest so like you're an employee there. You can play games, musical games, different games. You win tokens with those tokens. You can get merch. So you can go into the Netflix theater sponsored by Netflix. You can do games and get merch and you can get intangible Stranger Things T-shirts that you now can wear. That's sort of, you know, it's a very robust environment. And, you know, a number of the, the lead articles said, you know, Walmart obviously is, is as the largest retailer in the world, has just, you know, put out there the largest metaverse build for, of any retailer. And so, you know, that's pretty impressive. And we did it. I mean, we did it with the client, obviously, but we did mm. the build and built the world and so forth. Amazing. Well, well, congratulations to you you and to Walmart. And I, I'll be honest, I haven't been able to look. I don't have Roblox myself, but I, you know, having seen the articles and I understand my, um, you know, we, we see a lot of our younger relatives. And so I'm very familiar with Minecraft and Fortnite. My son is quite young, so I assume, well, I think we'll be on Roblox shortly. But I think a fascinating example of actually bringing the metaverse to life and, and you know, the, the impact it has. I really liked what you said of actually, because I think it's quite true. We are at a really almost sort of epochal moment of web three, like web two, like web one, there will be real winners that come out early. And actually, if you can grab that, and you may have answered my next question already, because at web one, at web two, these larger corporate organizations were quite slow, they were quite risk averse. To your point, web three, are you actually finding this is an easy conversation to have because they were burnt twice, they now they want to try this, you're not finding that resistance? Or are you still finding, you know, some of these organizations, they're run by people who have never heard of Roblox. Do you still get some pushback? And if so, sort of how do you sort of challenge the client with that? How do you overcome those, you know, skepticisms? Yeah, no, I I, I kind of, you know, uh, unscientifically, because obviously, I just happen to talk to a set of people. It seems to be about 50-50, about 50-50. And, and then I'd even break it down more. I'd say 25% of the people are excited about this and think of it as enablement and so forth. Think of it as a future. I think 25% of the, of the people, these are executives, are more in the fear part of it, that I've been burned a couple of times. So I don't know why I'm doing this, but I have to do it because I've been burned before. Then I think there's sort of 25% of the people who are type A uh, rationalists who just don't have it in their heart and soul to ever support something that they can't like write it out as a, as a business case. And then I think there's 25% of the people who just hate change, whatever it is, even if it's good change, right? So those are sort of the demographics. And, you know, that, that last 25% are the ones that still think it's silly to order groceries online, but, you know, I will because I don't want to go to the store, you know, type of thing. But uh, so, so it really is um, now right now, uh, well, particularly for a company our size, of course, but just in general, just with those stats, I mean, it's a high growth area because it's going, you're going from zero to something. So from a business opportunity point of view, it's huge, you know, but I mean, I definitely don't think it's like everybody in the world's founding table saying we got to do this. There's a lot of naysayers and I have a lot of sympathy for that. But I do tell them, I tell them, look, you know, I mean, you could say, could have said the same thing with 1.0 and like you can't sell cars on a website, but now you can, you know, so you just have to 
Yeah, well, and I, and I think your point there of, you know, actually 50%, of, and I know it was a crude sort of estimate, but if 50% of people are are behind this, there is a huge growth there. And, you know, this is how how economies grow, how companies grow, how companies shrink. Some companies will embrace, some won't. And, you know, I think you're right as well. And it, it'll be really interesting to see the winners, the losers, what lands well, what doesn't, because I think there has been in pockets in co- sort of less metaverse, more just Web3 in general, sort of some bad press, the kind of the NFT crash that we've seen over the last year, raising questions around actually is that, you know, what does that mean for NFTs as a platform? And I suspect we'll see other platforms, other sort of projects that will drop, will go out of popularity, but actually that core technology and, so, you know, the underpinnings are going to lead to some winners. And like you say, it sounds like some pe- enough people are understanding that to help, you know, for, for you to take your proposition to and for them to embrace it as well. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't even mention the crypto NFT part of it. Now there, obviously there have been crashes, been corrections and, and so forth. But once again, I would say that's the healthy creative destruction that goes on. And there were a number of e-commerce sites in, in 2000, 2001 that went bankrupt, you know, because what they spent so much money on customer acquisition and they weren't getting the related commerce pull through. So you know, hundreds of millions of dollars lost, but you also had Amazon. So, so that's the thing. And Amazon was losing a lot of money, right? Yeah. At that time. So it's hard. I mean, I think, you know, that's, it's hard and it's fun, but, uh, you know, I'm just firmly convinced it's the future, but um, that's the easy part. How do you make money at it and how quickly things happen? That's the art uh, part of it, you know? So. Well, I think you're, you know, your example from Web One is quite—is it Pets.com's the famous example of? I, I was a bit younger then, but Pets.com was one of the famous. Got a lot of money, never made money, went to zero. It's kind of the—I don't even say the poster child of the dot-com boom from memory. But I think you may be able to tell me better. But unfortunately, um, one of ours at Idealab, eToys, which was one of the first to a conversation, one of the first to go public, uh, actually did go bankrupt pretty quickly. On. But it, it was a situation of spending way too much on traditional advertising and customer acquisition. You know, so it was really kind of an operational business problem, not that, you know, not that toys aren't going to be sold on the web. But yeah, so I, I kind of feel a little blessed by having been through a couple of these frothy periods so that I, I, I can both live with both thoughts in my head. One is that, you know, there's a lot of, I won't say a, a lot of BS going on here, but at the same time, there's something here. Those two thoughts can be kept in the same head. Yeah, I completely agree, Andy, and I think it will be be you know to your point around uh, your letter to your seventeen year old self. I think I think it'll be really interesting for you to listen back to this when you your seventy year old self and see how much you know see what the world has changed, see how much of this has come to being. And I think my last question, sort of on this area, and it almost brings us back to the audience for this podcast, consulting firms. We talked about the ones you've worked with. I have listeners in big firms like, you know, Accenture, like Frog, all the way down to much smaller boutiques, sort of 10, 20, 50 people firms. And this might be too big or a too early question, but given all of the channels you're working in at Journey, given things like Metaverse, Voice, Crypto, actually, from a B2B perspective, for consulting firms who are trying to attract new commercial clients, actually, how can they be thinking about this? Can they start to be using certain channels is it too early? Sort of what's your take on this for the consulting industry? Well, I, it's a little hard because uh, the touch points I'm focusing on are, are sort of more definitely B2C oriented versus a B2B. It seems like on the B2B side, there are some related 
activity. So if you look at metaverse, you know, you, and the technologies there, you, you do have technologies like um, Epic, which owns Fortnite, but also owns Unreal, which is a technology used to build 3D twins with a very high fidelity. Now, this is going to take off pretty dramatically. It's, it's just in the beginning of taking off, and we may have some announcements here shortly about companies and, and Unreal and so forth. So what's going to happen is everything will be created. And I'm not, I mean, Unreal won't be the only technology, but in Unreal environments, and then two things will be done with that. One is you can use that to basically, you know, look at supply chain, look at throughput, look at traffic flow, look at all these things in a simulation that, you know, just is like almost one for one. And you can build physical and you can build meta. And it all comes out of a one design, one build piece of, uh, of creative work done in Unreal. And so I know that, you know, the larger firms like an Accenture and so forth are using some of these technologies, not just to build, you know, fun environments for kids to go, you know, do metaverse playgrounds. They're also doing it to build a factory floor and look at the flows and adjust those flows without without having to you know actually start physically building yet. And then I think the other uses are uh, that I see consulting firms is on the enterprise side. So you know learning, onboarding, more sophisticated meetings than uh, teams. All those things I think are very realistic applications of you know AR, VR, and so forth. Um, and I know I know Accenture just going to know a little bit better as, as you know they bought. I think it's publicly announced they bought 60,000 Oculus headsets, which they're using for training and onboarding people, you know, things like that. So those are some of the opportunities from uh, both both in the using for yourself, but then getting your enterprise clients to, uh, you know, they're going to hire consultants to help them implement it. It's not what we do at Journey. Our focus is, you know, much more in creating B2C worlds than the B2B side. No, and, and, and thank you for that. Because I, I think, like you say, for those who do, play in the b2b space yeah those are some fascinating areas i i had heard of unreal but i wasn't familiar with the usage and i think like you say actually particularly in you know large-scale operations consulting if you're trying to manage your map a factory floor if you can visualize that and run that as a sort of virtual world that opens up a whole load of possibilities and like you say the enterprise side as well for larger clients larger firms and yes the um, consulting service lines that will need be needed to sustain these for anyone young listening to this you know there's probably a whole practice to be built in unreal or in you know virtual onboarding so i, lo- I love those andy i think because i'm very conscious of time i we could talk for hours on all of these and you know there's probably a conversation for us at some point online or offline about the sort of the journey you've been on over the last 10 years and and actually how that's helped you because i think the whole conversation's been fascinating that early part and you know i know you said it was a little woo woo but i think it's really valuable to to talk about and share with our listeners so thank you for that but i'm going to come to my last questions andy and these are things i ask all of my guests i'm interested in your answers because of some of the things we've covered so the first one is books and this is when I ask all my guests, and it, it, it's really what is the book or books that have either had the most impact on you or you've gifted to others most often? And of course, I'm not going to say Journey. That would <laughs> I be- just assumed Journey would be top of the list. A book that I've shared with a number of people is The, the Year of Magical Thinking, Joan Didion, which is a book about her husband passed away suddenly in front of her with a massive heart attack. And she's one, she's a brilliant, you know, American writer, screenplay writer, recently passed away. The book is about the year after he passed. And what I think is brilliant about it is it, it just 
it, it, I mean, you know, if I were to come up with a stupid way to think about it, you know, if live life as if every second of it is the last second. And and she writes it in an incredibly be- beautifully compelling way through the story of her first year without her husband and what and, and her husband, her her roommate, her her soulmate, and how precious time is. So that that would be one on the book side. Amazing. That's uh, it's not a book I know, and it sounds fantastic. So I've just googled it here to have a look. I'm on holiday next week, so. That is one I'm going to add because, yes, I think to some of the things we've talked about around trusting the universe, knowing yourself, time is not always as long as we think we do have. So that's amazing. Any other books before I move on? Or is that the kind of the main one you'd want to leave us with? That's probably the main one. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, and I will, Andy, put a link. I know you you didn't recommend it, but I will put a link to your novel as well because I know we've talked about that. And then the very last question, and, and this, again, is, it could be recapping things you've talked about. It could be new things, but it's, it's to get your advice. So you have three people in front of you, and it, I'll use Accenture parlance for ease. So one is an analyst. You know, they've just got out of college. They're just getting into that sort of first role. One is that manager grade. So they're, you know, they're, they're senior enough to have options, but they're still fairly junior. And the third is someone who is approaching partner so you know they're, they're making that step up and the question is what one piece of advice would you give to each of them well it does go back to some of the original things we said because i think the piece of advice actually remains the same regardless of the, those levels which is you know what voice are you listening to as you're making decisions about your career or even decisions about what you do that day and what voice are you listening to and Yes, you should be listening and taking advantage of, say, at a place like Accenture, that you're surrounded by brilliant people, experienced people, very successful people. But there's only one voice that is your voice, and make sure you listen to that voice as well. Because I do think in that kind of environment, you can get drowned out. You know, you can get drowned out because you've got 20 incredibly brilliant partners who are just so successful and articulate. And you're just, you know, little Andy or little Nick, you know, and, but that's the most important voice you need to listen to. So that's my advice. Amazing, Andy. Well, I, I think a brilliant place to to finish. And yes, I, I think a really nice message as well, because it is, it is so true. It's always easy to look up and think others have more better, have the, you know, know the right path. And like you say, as long as you trust in yourself, I think, you know, that that's the best route. So thank you for that. And not so much a question, but as a last piece, if anyone who's listened to this wants to find out more about yourself, about journey, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Sure. Well, I think in terms of journey, uh, we're at journey.world is our URL. Uh, in terms of myself, I'm pretty good about responding to LinkedIn messages. So I would suggest just go to my LinkedIn and I do respond to any message or even if it's you know, something like I'm not interested in whatever it is. So I'd suggest LinkedIn for me at journey.world is the URL. And then, yeah, if you're interested in the book, just if you just Google it's Amazon, Andrew Zimmerman Journey, you'll, you'll, you'll see the book. Amazing, Andy. We'll, we'll put links to all of those in the show notes so people can find you, find Journey and, and find your book. And yeah, that has been a brilliant conversation. So thank you so much for giving your time, Andy. I know you're exceptionally busy at the moment. All that's left to say is thank you and, and all the best for the rest of your week. Well, thanks, Nick. And thanks for letting me share both um, you know, the professional and personal side of things. And I've really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk. 
and I really look forward to hearing from you.